marched five leagues over a fine country with broad plains, the most beautiful in all of New Spain. We camped on the banks of an arroyo. This I called San Antonio de Padua because we reached it on his feast day. General Domingo Terán de los Rios, June 13, 1691. Welcome to a new history of old San Antonio. I'm Brandon Seal. The goal of this series is to cover the history of San Antonio from its founding 300 years ago until the arrival of the railroad 150 or so years later, that point in time when San Antonio would begin to properly enter the fold of North American cities. Until that moment, and down to the present day, frankly, San Antonio is one of the most isolated and interesting communities in the Americas. A crossroads, of course, but also the birthplace of a unique culture whose influence would spread far beyond the limits of that first little settlement on the Spanish frontier. On June 13, 1691, General Domingo Terán de los Rios would become the first to say the name San Antonio at that particular spot where the Coahuilan Desert collided with the Texas Hill Country and the westernmost fingers of the East Texas Woodlands. Arriving from the south with the hills of the Balcones Escarpment framing the creeks draining into the San Antonio River Basin, it might have felt something like walking onto the stage of a great lush amphitheater, particularly when taken in contrast to the harsh scrubland that he and his 63-man expedition had just crossed. But it wasn't an empty stage onto which they marched. Even 150 years later, travelers would not fail to comment on the diversity of wildlife that the region supported. Buffalo, bears, lions, ocelots, coyotes, antelope, javelinas, dove, quail, ducks, alligators, fish, and of course rattlesnakes. Though not armadillos, they wouldn't arrive until centuries later. The riverbanks and low spots sprouted with elms, oaks, cottonwoods, poplars, laurels, cypress, mulberries, strawberries, and grapes, wild hemp nine feet high and flax two feet high. Though not mesquite, that too wouldn't become widespread until much later. And it was full of people. Up until the middle of the 19th century, Europeans constituted only a fraction of the population of the region that would later become Texas. As historian David Chipman puts it, Texas was a decidedly, quote, Indian domain, end quote. And in the San Antonio area specifically, it was the domain of the Coahuiltecan Indians. The Coahuiltecans lived in bands of 100 to 500 people and ranged over an area running from Matagorda Bay up to San Antonio, over to Eagle Pass, and down into Monclova, Nuevo León. Though labeled today as a single people, their languages were not always mutually intelligible, suggesting that they were probably just a collection of lightly related peoples living a similar lifestyle. They were pantheists, combining nature worship with peyote-induced hallucinogenic rituals. They called themselves something that sounded like the word payaya or pajalat, and dressed in tan deer hides, which they also used to drape over the wooden poles they carried around with them for shelter during their frequent migrations. In the winter, they hunted with small bows and arrows, or dug up roots and tubers. In the spring, they harvested what meager vegetables the monte offered them. In the summer, they gorged on prickly pear, and in the fall, they collected pecans. In good years, that is. Because in truth, the Coahuiltecans didn't really live off the land. They subsisted, and they subsisted poorly. They are perhaps best remembered for their appearance in Alvar Núñez Cabeza de Vaca's Relación as second harvesters, i.e. people eating the seeds and undigested food particles that they could salvage from the droppings of, shall we say, more effective predators. Though perhaps not solitary, life as a Coahuiltecan was poor, nasty, brutish, and short, and made them more so by the fact that they were preyed upon by nearly every other tribe in the region, especially the organized agricultural Hassanai Confederation in the east and the warrior nomad Apaches coming out of the great North American plains. The Spanish had laid claim to the area in which these Coahuiltecans lived for more than a hundred years before they ever laid eyes on it. Cabeza de Vaca may or may not have wandered through San Antonio's humble native villages. His account, as fascinating as it was, was hardly an enticement to settlement of the region. And by the way, if I leave you with no other call to action from this episode, let's please, please get somebody to make the movie of Cabeza de Vaca's wanderings. It needs to be done. It's like Dances with Wolves meets Revenant meets Heart of Darkness. It's incredible. Subsequent entradas by Spaniards in 1655 and 1675 probably just missed San Antonio, 
And the truth is that San Antonio and the entire province of Texas might very well have remained unsettled and largely unexplored for another hundred years, had not the Spanish suddenly been motivated by that most powerful motivating force known to man, envy. Sometime in 1685, rumors trickled back to the viceroys in New Spain of a coordinated French effort to establish a settlement in Texas. The viceroy sent out several frantic expeditions from Monterey to cut off these French invaders, who we know today as the La Salle Expedition. The ill-fated La Salle Expedition saw about 180 French colonists landed at Matagorda Bay, ostensibly mistaking it for the mouth of the Mississippi River, though very likely seeking contact with the prolific silver mines of northern Mexico. The French settlement in the Matagorda Bay was a disaster, yet its principal legacy was to motivate the Spanish to finally settle the northeastern reaches of their North American colonies. In 1689, one of these Spanish expeditions out of Monterey discovered the remains of La Salle's now-abandoned colony. The Spanish returned the next year in 1690 and destroyed what little of value was left, and did so so effectively that it would be almost 300 years before its location was rediscovered. This expedition also managed to find five young French survivors of La Salle's colony, the Talon siblings, that had lived the previous three or four years amongst the neighboring Karankawa and Hassanai tribes by whom they had been adopted, and amongst whom they were now able, thanks to their tattoos and knowledge of the language, to move about freely. These early Spanish entradas were almost always led by military men, but they were invariably accompanied by men of God as well. These expeditions of the 1680s were joined by Father Damien Massanet, a co-founder of the Franciscan College of Querétaro. Possibly no single institution prior to the founding of Brigham Young University would be responsible for so many conversions to Christianity, and nowhere would the Querétarans be more active than in northern Mexico and early Texas. And it was Father Massanet, using arguments of geopolitics as much as of religion, who successfully made the case for founding a mission amongst the Hassanai Indians, also known as Cataans, on June 1, 1690, in the vicinity of modern-day Nacogdoches, Texas. The San Francisco de las Tejas mission, however, went poorly, particularly after an epidemic of smallpox, which the Hassanai correctly suspected had been brought in by the Spanish, killed off a few thousand locals that first winter and turned the Hassanai against the Spanish. Back in Coahuila, Father Massanet pled frantically for assistance from the civil authorities to aid the new mission. And that's where General Domingo Terran de los Rios comes in. General Terran de los Rios was a Spanish soldier, a conquistador if you like, who had served in Peru, Mexico, and as governor of Sonora and Sinaloa prior to arriving in Monclova, where he took the office of governor of Coahuila in January of 1687 and soon thereafter the separate post of governor of Texas. Following viceregal orders, he departed Monclova for Texas in 1691 with 50 soldiers, charged with escorting some 13 Franciscans from the College of Caretro to East Texas to reinforce the struggling San Francisco mission. They traveled up the road that would later become known as the Camino Real, crossing the Rio Grande just south of modern-day Eagle Pass, through the San Antonio Basin, and up into East Texas, some 540 miles of wilderness. This expedition would found three more missions in East Texas, but even General Terran de los Rios could tell that the relief was simply a band-aid. Indeed, his assessment overall of Texas as a province was bleak. Namely, that, quote, no rational human being had ever seen a worse one, end quote. But one spot in particular had caught his eye. On June 13th, his expedition had camped at a settlement of Coahuiltecan Indians somewhere along the San Antonio River, at a spot the local Indians called Yanaguana, or Refreshing Waters, and that General Terran de los Rios would describe in his diary as, quote, the most beautiful in all of New Spain, end quote. That very day, Father Massanet held a mass, and June 13th, being the feast day of San Anthony of Padua, they named the river San Antonio and exchanged gifts with the natives, including rosaries, knives, beads, tobacco, and gave the gift of a horse to the local chief. Yet by 1693, all of the East Texas missions had been abandoned. Still, these early expeditions left behind several important legacies. The first was to leave behind a bull and a cow and a stallion and a mare at every river they crossed, seeding the Texas ranges with the horses and cattle that would dominate the province within a generation. 
and they left behind a few men, men who would build critical relationships with these Texas tribes. One man in particular, a boy actually, named Jose de Urrutia, was perhaps only 15 years old when he was left behind in 1693 in East Texas. His comrades would have been forgiven if they thought they would never hear from him again. And lastly, these first attempts had given the Franciscan missionaries a cause. Franciscan missionaries, as we'll come to see, seemed to almost seek adversity. Despite or perhaps even because of the failure of the San Francisco mission, they were more resolved than ever now to make settlement in Texas work. And back at the College of Querétaro, they studied the experience. One of the principal lessons they drew was that they needed an intermediate supply post if they wanted to support missions 540 miles away from the line of new Spanish settlement, anchored tenuously at this time in Monclova, Coahuila. And so, just seven years after the abandonment of the first East Texas missions on January 1st, 1700, Father Antonio Olivares and Father Felix Espinosa founded the Mission San Juan Bautista on the southern bank of the Rio Grande, between modern-day Piedra Negras and Nuevo Laredo. Two months later, they would found Mission San Francisco Solano just a few miles away. They took as their charges the local Coahuiltecans, who showed much stronger signs of embracing missionary life than any other natives yet encountered in northern New Spain. And the missionaries would receive an unexpected windfall sometime around 1701, when that soldier boy who had been left behind in East Texas in 1693 came marching up to the gates of these new missions. Only now, he wasn't a boy. José de Urrutia had spent the previous seven years living amongst the Hassanai and their families, not only learning their languages and customs, but eventually rising to command their armies, who warred incessantly with the Apaches coming off the plains. Even Father Espinosa's copious writings contain only faint sketches of those mysterious years when Urrutia went native and emerged from the East Texas woods as a sort of Spanish natty bumpo, able to move effortlessly between both native and Spanish worlds. Father Olivares realized how valuable a man like Urrutia could be. He downloaded from him all that he could about the East Texas tribes and even, to a certain extent, befriended him. And this is no small thing because Father Olivares was an ornery dude who managed to get crossways with almost everyone that he had extended dealings with, which was quite a lot of people because Olivares had spent decades now as a missionary in Zacatecas and later Coahuila and was perhaps the most experienced Spanish missionary in North America. From Urrutia, Father Olivares started to understand better the different native tribes throughout the Texas region and appreciate some of the cultural differences and alliances that he could take advantage of to plant missions among them. Armed with this new information and excited by the possibilities, Olivares, Espinosa, and the other Franciscans were ready to make another go at it. For reasons of protocol and protection, however, they needed the secular authorities on board. Captain Diego Ramon, commander of the Presidio of the Rio Grande, which guarded these northernmost missions, was the son of one of the most famous Indian fighters of the previous century. His father had been a sergeant major in the slow and steady slog of Spanish conquest up through north-central Mexico, and Captain Ramon himself bore the scars of settlements planted in hostile terrain from Querétaro through Saltillo and up into Monclova where he was in 1701, when at the age of 60, he was tapped to command the Presidio guarding the Rio Grande missions. The Ramones and their brothers-in-arms had developed a unique fighting style over the previous century as they had moved up into the northern Mexican plains. There they encountered for the first time in the Spanish experience in America mounted opponents, Plains Indians, and particularly Apaches, who employed the hit-and-run, quick-strike tactics that steppe horsemen the world over had used for millennia to terrorize sedentary civilizations. The Spanish met their opponents on their own terms. They formed Compañías Volantes, flying companies of light cavalry, like the company that Captain Ramón commanded at the Rio Grande Presidio, armed with leather shields, lances, and primitive firearms, and mounted on top of the high-crown saddles that in the old world were reserved only for nobility. These units were fast-moving, capable of harassing and even pursuing these Indios Bárbaros, as the Spanish called these horse warriors. There was something clearly romantic about these mounted New World Knights as well, and even in their first generation, a certain lore and mystique began to develop around them. That said, the life of soldiers on the new Spanish frontier 
was far from glamorous, and was, in fact, downright impoverished. Pay was poor when it arrived at all, and so most presidial officers became adept at finding ways to supplement their incomes, and indeed, a certain amount of this kind of entrepreneurship was even encouraged by Spanish authorities who realized that this presented the sole economic enticement to draw Spanish civilization out to the frontiers. The highly mercantilist and closed economy of imperial Spain artificially increased prices for almost every imaginable good, but living on the frontier offered certain opportunities for circumventing some of the strict import requirements that governed the rest of the country, and Captain Ramon saw opportunity in the great emptiness between his post and French Louisiana. Undoubtedly, Urrutia, in his time with the Hassanai in East Texas, had borne witness to the beginnings of this illicit trade in the region, and Ramon was intrigued by what Urrutia might know. So intrigued was he that he married his daughter off to Urrutia only a short time after meeting him to cement their alliance. And so, when the Franciscan friars came up with their plan to establish a mission in East Texas at a point only a few miles from the French trading centers of Louisiana, Captain Ramon jumped on board. So by 1707, and albeit for wildly different reasons, the ornery Father Olivares, our chronicler of the period, Father Espinosa, Captain Ramon, and his new son-in-law, Urrutia, successfully made the case to their respective superiors of the need for a new expedition into East Texas. In 1707, 31 soldiers and 150 horses under Captain Ramon and accompanied by Father Espinosa undertook a two-month-long exploration of modern-day South Texas and the future site of San Antonio. In addition to returning with new recruits for the Rio Grande missions, the Ramon expedition also managed to delimit the range of the Coahuiltecan tribes and received from several of these bands, particularly in the San Antonio area, strong professions of interest for a mission in their territory. Encouraged, ornery Father Olivares accompanied Father Espinosa on the next entrada, in 1709. This expedition also stopped at San Antonio, broke bread with the natives, and remarked on its suitability for settlement. Exploring the area in more depth, they found and named San Pedro Springs, perhaps the most visible outcropping of the remarkable geology underlying the region. Father Olivares returned from the 1709 expedition, conferred with his brethren, and set out for Spain to make the case directly to the crown for a new attempt at settling the frontier. Yet it stagnated. Texas couldn't have been further from the mind of the king or even of the Council of the Indies, which was charged with overseeing Spanish activity in the Americas. The Caribbean islands at the time were developing into highly profitable plantation economies. The old empires of the Aztecs and the Incas were producing foods and spices that were in high demand in Europe, and newly discovered mines in Zacatecas and Durango were spewing forth specie at prodigious rates. Sensing that they were getting nowhere, the brothers of the College of Caretro began to scheme, and they knew how to push the buttons of the civil authorities. In 1711, one of Olivares' brothers sent a letter to the French governor of Louisiana, asking for his assistance in re-establishing a mission in East Texas. How was this not outright treason, you ask, inviting the French to help settle new Spanish territory? Well, the Franciscans were men of God, and it was the souls of the native population that concerned them more than any secular allegiances. So if France was willing to do what Spain wasn't in the name of eternal salvation, why, it was their moral duty to seek out help from the French. The French governor didn't let the opportunity pass. Looking around for a capable agent to send forth into the Texas Territory, his eyes landed on Louis Juchereau de Saint-Denis, administrator of Natchitoches, the westernmost French settlement in Louisiana, who we'll just call Saint-Denis going forward. To guide him, Saint-Denis recruited two of the tattooed Talon brothers, survivors of the La Salle expedition, with 30 years of experience now moving about between French, Spanish, and Native American Texas. Departing in early 1714, the Saint-Denis expedition traipsed from east to west across Texas, reverse marching down the Camino Real from Louisiana, including through the future site of San Antonio, where Saint-Denis also noted the same Coahuiltecan settlement and its attractive surroundings, all allegedly in search of that dear Franciscan father who had so humbly requested their aid. They marched right on across the province until, to the feigned surprise of everyone there, 
they arrived one day at the Rio Grande missions. Captain Ramon immediately arrested Saint-Denis, sort of, and then wrote back to the governor and viceroy for guidance as to what he should do with the French interloper. I say sort of because not long after he imprisoned Saint-Denis, Captain Ramon married his granddaughter off to him, again forming a critical familial and commercial alliance. This and everything that'll happen in future years sure looks like Captain Ramon was in on the scheme, or at the very least, saw quickly how to profit from it. He was the commander of the last outpost of Spanish settlement on the Texas frontier. Saint-Denis was the administrator of the last outpost of French settlement on the Texas frontier. Which is to say, nothing stood in the way of these two creating a small, illicit trading empire except their own willingness to enforce the laws against such trade against themselves. The Saint-Denis expedition also proved most beneficial to Father Olivares. What years of reasoned entreaties had failed to accomplish, a single French foray did almost overnight. Saint-Denis' mere presence in Texas was enough to motivate the Spanish authorities into action, because the only thing more terrifying to Spanish administrators than the uninhabitable wilds of Texas was the idea of the uninhabitable wilds of Texas belonging to the French. And so, in 1715, the Council of the Indies authorized the establishment of four missions in East Texas with a presidio to support them. And the next year, in 1716, they authorized the establishment of a strategic presidio near that spot on the San Antonio River that the locals called Yanaguana. What a moment this must have been! First, you have the culmination of all these men's efforts finally coming to fruition, decades of exploration and petition and alliance building. But second... You have, at some point around 1715, perhaps all of these men whose lives we're going to follow for the next quarter century in one place, there at the end of the world in those Rio Grande missions, the silver-tongued Frenchman Saint-Denis, ornery Father Olivares, our chronicler of the period Father Espinosa, Captain Diego Ramon, and of course, José de Urrutia. They would soon scatter to the winds. Saint-Denis would talk himself out of his predicament and return to Natchitoches a free man and now grandson-in-law to Captain Ramon. Captain Ramon and his son-in-law, José de Urrutia, because of their association with Saint-Denis, would fall under suspicion of the new governor of Coahuila and so would be held back from the expeditions of the next few years, until, that is, their abilities as Indian fighters were needed once again. Father Espinosa would go out in 1716 to lead the re-establishment of those East Texas missions, which left only ornery Father Olivares stewing impatiently while the governor made preparations for the 1718 expedition that was to found San Antonio. Governor Martín de Alarcón, like Captain Ramón, was another accomplished Indian fighter albeit of noble extraction, and he would lead the 1718 expedition himself. He held concurrently the titles of Governor of Coahuila and Governor of Texas, and had fought Spain's enemies from the Iberian Peninsula to North Africa and throughout her American colonies. And there was a reason that an Indian fighter had been chosen. The four East Texas missions founded in 1716 were going almost as poorly as the first East Texas missions had. Thanks to the account left behind by our friend Father Espinosa, we can read all about how relations with the local Indians deteriorated so badly that Espinosa and his brethren and the soldiers left there to protect them were reduced to eating crow's meat and living essentially under siege from the neighboring tribes from whom they had failed to recruit a single convert. Inasmuch as Governor Alarcón's was an expedition of settlement, it was a rescue mission as well. And in the eyes of the ornery Father Olivares, it couldn't leave soon enough. He attributed Governor Alarcón's delays first to incompetence and later to malice. Eventually, Father Olivares grew so frustrated that in April 1718, he left the Rio Grande missions without the governor. To be precise, he actually took one of the missions with him. When he waded across the Rio Grande in April of 1718, he brought with him the vestments, symbols, and even the baptismal records of the old Mission San Francisco Solano, which he had founded there 18 years before. Father Olivares and a handful of Coahuiltecan converts arrived on April 25, 1718, to the upper San Antonio River Basin where Governor Alarcón rendezvoused with him six days later on May 1st. 
an old Coahuiltecan chief on a 30-some-odd-year-old horse, the same chief, in fact, who had welcomed General Terran de los Rios 27 years before, welcomed them in a spring on the east bank of San Pedro Creek, about a mile south of its headwaters, near the spot that would later become the Knights of Columbus Gathering Hall. There, the Arnery Father Olivares and Governor Alarcón held a mass and founded Olivares' mission. The Mission San Antonio de Valero, they called it, in honor of the Viceroy of New Spain's title as the Marquis of Valero. It would be almost a hundred years before anyone would call it the Alamo. They set about building a humble chapel, a hakal in truth, of mud, brush, and straw. On July 8th, they would celebrate the baptism of their first convert. But the vast majority of the people on Governor Alarcón's expedition weren't missionaries and weren't converts. With him were ten families, some 72 souls, hardened frontier stock, primarily drawn from the settlements of Coahuila and Nuevo León, and lured by the promise of land. Many of them were families of the soldiers brought along to man the Presidio. A few were artisans, blacksmiths, and leather workers. In recognition of the hazards of the frontier, these first settler families were each given 450 pesos, a few head of livestock, and farming implements to start their new lives. On May 5th, at a spot about a half mile south of the new Mission Valero, Governor Alarcón would establish the Presidio de Bejar on the west bank of the San Antonio River. The neighboring villa or town he called San Antonio de Bejar, in honor of the viceroy's brother, the Duke de Bejar. The governor then began assigning lands to the settlers, though sadly, these initial assignments would never be properly recorded to the full satisfaction of Spain's rather exacting civil code. There were more important things to worry about, frankly, like getting a crop in the ground, which they did, though sadly, after they harvested the corn and vegetables later that year, rodents got to most of them, and they were forced to live on supplies sent up from Coahuila for most of that first year, and on the bountiful cattle which now proliferated in the province thanks to the stock left behind by the 1690 expedition. But both the missionaries and the settlers set about immediately to dig irrigation ditches, and as a result of this and the experience of the first year, the second year's harvest was much more successful. From the beginning, economic life revolved around the military. Military city New Spain, if you like. Nearly every family had a soldier in it, and even those who weren't soldiers were forced regularly to engage in the defense of the community, which would find itself under near-constant attack. The Presidio de Bejar was never a fort, as we might imagine it. No wall would ever be built. The San Antonio River to the east and San Pedro Creek to the west afforded a form of natural protection, albeit meager. Yet within a decade, a viable, independent frontier community took root. Families grew, soldiers retired and became citizens, and newcomers trickled up the Camino Real until the population was perhaps as many as 300 people by 1731, the community having celebrated 47 weddings and baptized 107 children since its founding in 1718. Nothing forges community more firmly and more quickly than shared hardship. And in recognition of that shared hardship, the first citizens of San Antonio took to calling each other vecinos, neighbors all. But there's still the big why questions. Why was San Antonio settled where it was settled? And why did the San Antonio settlement succeed when nearly every other mission in Texas, and there would be like 50 of them, failed? First, as we've seen, simple geography was a major contributor. Any road going from northern New Spain to eastern North America in the 18th century was going to pass through San Antonio. Yet any closer to the Gulf Coast, you'd be plagued by mosquitoes, man-eating Karankawa Indians, and rivers that swelled seasonally. Any further to the north, and you're up in the hill country, not good traveling country, and full of even meaner Indians than on the coast. San Antonio is just far enough inland and just flat enough to be traversable nearly year-round, and it lay at almost the exact midpoint between the cities of northern New Mexico and the first settlements in French Louisiana. Second, the ecosystem. Any further east, and you're in the piney woods, and the Spanish were not woodsmen. North, and you're on the featureless Great Plains or the barren hill country. San Antonio was the northeasternmost outpost of the readily recognizable northern Mexican plains, a land with topography not unlike Old Spain itself. 
And where the Spanish converted this similarity to a real competitive advantage over the native populations was in how they used water. To the trained eye of a Spanish engineer, San Antonio's broad grassy plains crisscrossed by spring-fed creeks was an ideal setting in which to install flood irrigation systems by means of dams and canals or acequias. As the old Pearl Beer slogan reminds us, this was the land fed by 1,100 springs, burbling karst limestone filtered water and sloping at the near-perfect gradient to install mills and to make flood irrigation work. Further, millennia of flash floods coming off the Balcones escarpment, which still visit San Antonio with tragic frequency, had left behind a mineral-rich layer of topsoil, from which Spanish settlers could extract two growing seasons a year thanks to San Antonio's temperate climate. Third, and lastly, because San Antonio sat at the meeting point of multiple ecosystems, it was a sort of no-man's land for the various indigenous groups surrounding it. San Antonio was where the impossibly tall and cannibalistic Karankawas, the civilized yet warlike Hassanai, and the downright fearsome Apaches met to trade, but also where they came to prey on the poor Coahuiltecan tribes in the region. This made the Coahuiltecans, more so than any other population in Texas, much more willing recruits to the mission system, which offered them protection and a reliable food supply. Further, the mission founders now had a generation or two of experience under their belt dealing with Coahuiltecans in Coahuila proper, making them known quantities to each other and boosting their ability to recruit once they arrived in San Antonio. So combine all this with the European game of empires, Franciscan zeal, and a few colonial administrators trying to make a quick buck, and suddenly it becomes abundantly clear why San Antonio was a logical place to found a city. And inasmuch as Governor Alarcón in his time would presciently call the new settlement the, quote, rampart, the fortress of all new Spain, end quote, San Antonio's geographic advantages still command the continent today, which is why Joint Base San Antonio is the largest single Department of Defense installation in the U.S., where U.S. Army North and U.S. Army South, among others, bear responsibility for the security of the Western Hemisphere from their headquarters at Fort Sam Houston. Yet it's also precisely because of this geographical location at the cultural crossroads of multiple Western empires and many more Native American ones that San Antonio would become the most contested point on the continent for the first 150 years of its existence. In the next episode, we'll explore the Spanish missionary system in more detail, as four more missions are soon founded in the San Antonio area. We'll learn the crucial role that water played, and still plays, in San Antonio's story, and we'll witness the first hints of the many conflicts to come over San Antonio as the Apaches opened a half-century of warfare on that little Spanish settlement that had been so carelessly thrust into their domain. Thank you for listening. Please go to iTunes or Stitcher and subscribe or leave us a review, because if everyone who listened to this podcast left a review on iTunes or Stitcher, it would launch San Antonio's story to the top of the charts. For more information and old episodes, you can also visit our website at www.brandonseal.com. Editing for this episode was performed by my lovely wife and in-house copy editor, Susana. Sound engineering was performed by Stephen Bennett. A special thanks to my friend Noel McKay for letting us use his song, Mi San Antonio. I'd like to recommend that you go to San Pedro Park and check out San Pedro Springs. The springs flow into a pool that San Antonians have been swimming in since before it even had a saint's name, and whose visibility will only increase now with the new San Pedro Creek Redevelopment Project. For this episode, I want to recommend as well that you check out the San Antonio Tricentennial Commission website at www.sanantonio300.org. It's a one-stop shop where you can learn about all the different events going on in 2018 to honor the 300th anniversary of our city's founding. 